God, we gather in this place because we're longing for a word from you. And Lord, I am acutely aware that no one here needs a word from me. So God, would you open our ears, our minds, our hearts to receive what only you have for us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I got married very young. I was a fresh 22. And, you know, if you think about it, that's a pretty insane thing to do. That's a pretty crazy thing to do. Um, you know, you make these beautiful idealistic, lifelong promises to one another. And you make them to somebody who is inevitably going to change as they grow. No one stays the same. You make promises, vows to love this person no matter what happens. It's crazy. It is crazy that people do this. It's crazy that I did this. Choosing then to be a pastor is also a pretty strange thing, a pretty crazy thing. Pastors in most denominations, from Roman Catholic to Lutheran, from Presbyterian to Anglican, they go through this thing called ordination, where they end up making vows, making promises to God and to other people and their promises regarding their beliefs and their practices, intense promises. And for some, these promises are just like in marriage, meant to be lifelong vows before God. Now, something I have not chosen to do is perhaps like choose to be a doctor, which is perhaps more culturally celebrated than a pastor, but it also comes along with making these intense promises. Most graduation ceremonies for doctors include some sort of oath-making, some sort of oath-making that usually has some part or some reference to the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm. Above all, do no harm. And even for those who don't take an oath... All doctors are subject to some kind of medical malpractice that someone could, could pull on them. Uh, Sarah and I have a close friend whose husband is an OBGYN, and we really want them to move to Chicago. You know, why don't you guys move to Chicago? There's so many jobs here, this and that. And he said, you know, in Chicago, the, the malpractice laws are extremely in favor of the patient, and even though he's a very kind, thoughtful person, he doesn't want to risk the amount of times he might be sued. And then, so you might think about doctors. Then you also can think about therapists. Therapists as well, they have this code of ethics that they agree to, this way that they promise to interact. And they have to agree to it in order to be licensed. My dad is a psychologist, and he was telling me about colleagues, friends that he has who ended up uh, dating their patient. Um, and then, you know, things seemed to be going great. And 
when the relationship ended, that patient was able to sue the therapist because that's outside of the ethics of a counseling relationship. So think about these relationships, therapist and patient, doctor and patient, pastor and congregant, and spouses, husband and wife, let's say. What do all these relationships have in common? There are probably lots of things, but the two I want to bring up are vulnerability and partnership. These are all relationships of vulnerability. Um, To be vulnerable, of course, is to be open, and that means being open to harm, being open to being harmed by the other. And in all these scenarios, in all these relationships, at least one person in the relationship can be harmed by the other. There's now a famous story that has its own podcast and now its own uh, TV show about a therapist in New York City who, in an attempt to help his patient with boundaries around money, he ends up (laughs) with most of that patient's money in his name and most, if not all, of that patient's property in his name because he's going to help him, you know, with boundaries. Well, these sort of vulnerable relationships, uh, they, make, they can make people open to exploitation. And that's, that's what ends up happening in that relationship. Uh, in the same way, right, if congregants are genuinely open to God and to one another, their hearts are open. You're open to being changed and being transformed. Well, then pastors, whether from the pulpit or in one-on-one pastoral counseling, we have the capacity to inflict spiritual abuse, or much worse, on their people. Um, Lately, there's been countless stories of spiritual abuse, power abuse in the church, sexual abuse in the church, emotional abuse, financial abuse, all of it, because people have opened themselves. They said, this is a space where I want to be open to God and one another, so I'll be open to my pastor's authority. And it's resulted in a a vulnerable relationship of exploitation. Marriage is uniquely a relationship where both parties are meant to be in a place of vulnerability, of openness to one another. I mean, money, sex, power. In a relationship, these are all meant to be shared which requires tremendous amounts of vulnerability, a shared bank account, a shared bed, a shared way of leading a home. We all have stories in our own marriages, in friends' marriages. We all have stories of how this has gone wrong. We've seen it open the door to abuse in others. So all these relationships They require vulnerability. But at their most ideal, they're all also meant to be partnerships. When both sides creatively contribute and participate, something new and better comes about. That's a partnership. The partnership creates something that either party couldn't bring about on their own. 
think of an OBGYN and a pregnant woman. No OBGYN, no matter how skilled and educated they are, can bring about new life without a pregnant woman walking into their office. At least I haven't seen it or heard about it. And on the other side, the safety of the birth and the health of the mother and the child ought to be substantially higher due to her partnering with a doctor, right? with some type of doctor. That partnership brings about more goodness than the sum of its parts. Either side couldn't achieve it on their own. Same with a pastor. A pastor, I feel like my duty is to keep the community attentive to God. Eugene Peterson says that, and I've taken that to heart, that pastors are called to do that. That we're called to equip the saints for ministry, which is a very churchy way of saying to help people hear the voice of God and respond to it in their lives. To help them discern and do the will of God. A pastor on his or her own, (laughs) right, uh, will bear very little fruit. If I was the only one trying to do all the work of God in our church, it would be a very sad church. But a humble pastor within a community of openness will see God's work springing up all over the place, popping up in all of your lives, because I believe the Spirit is present in all of your lives. This is our partnership together. And then, of course, is marriage. I mean, in the scriptures, they talk about marriage as the context for procreation, for the literal outcoming of new life, right? You can't produce a human if you're sitting alone in the corner. Do we all know this, right? We all understand this basic aspect of of science. Now, of course, there's so much more than children that can come out of a marriage. But the idea is that it's a partnership of two individuals joining together to offer the world more goodness than they could on their own, solely as individuals. Okay, so all these relationships, at their best, are partnerships. They bring something new into the world that, if these people were on their own, couldn't quite exist. Okay? Even when that something new is just a changed you. The truth, though, is that in order for these partnerships to be transformational, they require the vulnerability. If a patient wants to heal, he needs to be open and honest with his doctor or with his therapist, or else it's just a waste of everyone's time. If a congregant like you wants to experience spiritual growth, you're going to need to be open and honest with a pastor, with a spiritual director, with some sort of spiritual authority in your life. I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying that all of you need to you know, come to me to do that, but there needs to be some level of that in your life. If a husband or wife wants to experience intimate connection, if they want to experience growth as a family, they need to be open and honest with each other. We know know this. We all know this. 
But in these contexts, transformation always requires vulnerability. But because of our sinful nature, vulnerability is inherently dangerous. This is a bit of a conundrum. I feel like it is in my own life. And I think that's why there's a third thing in common in these relationships. A third thing. They all require some type of an oath, a promise, a commitment, a vow, or better yet, a covenant. A covenant. We're talking about a new covenant today. That's the, the sort of theme. And, and a covenant is a very churchy word. It's a relational pledge. You can think of it as a relational pledge. Pledge, a commitment to live a certain way in light of a promise. The promise and a commitment. And what covenants do, one of the things they do, is they make space. They create space for vulnerability to happen. They provide a container for the boundaries, for the commitment, for the clarity necessary to remain open to one another. In the scriptures, covenants are actually how God does relationships with people. They're that important. How God does relationship with humanity. You know, God could rule the world all by himself. He could do all of it all by himself. And yet, he desires to share his rule and partner with humanity. Uh, A covenant is different than a legal contract. It might sound like, oh, it's just a contract where two parties agree to one thing. Um, Here's one way it's different. As soon as a legal contract is broken, the other party can legally abandon their commitments. You broke the contract, so I'm done. It just ends. One party messes up, the other party can be out the door. It's clean, it's easy, it's done. Because the contract is based on usually some sort of service. Some sort of service rendered. And so when it's broken, it's done. But covenant is based on relationship. So even if one party violates the covenant, the other party seeks to uphold it for the sake of remaining in relationship. And in this way, a covenant is much more like a partnership. And it's a way God invites us as partners in the kingdom of God. Todd Hunter, what he calls Christians, are the cooperative friends of Jesus. And I really like that saying. Cooperative friends of Jesus. Co-laborers building together God's kingdom of justice and peace. And covenants... It's, it's like a really big deal in the scripture. It's, it's the architecture for the overarching narrative of all of scripture. And so in order for our teaching text and this concept to really make any sense to us, we need to get a good grasp of the covenants in the scripture. And rather than me trying to summarize all this and talk more and present it in a way that's interesting there's already people who made a video that do it a thousand times better than me. So we're just going to watch the video. In five minutes, I hope you can grasp a bit of the story of Scripture and a bit of the idea of covenant. 
Uh, if you've never watched any of those videos from Bible Project, you should. Uh, they're free. There's many of them. And if you watch all of them, you'll, you'll have no need of me anymore. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be good to go. No, they're really, really well done and really um, theologically astute as well. Hmm. It's a great, great video. You know, it's so helpful, that video, because it shows us that partnership with God has always been his design for us. It's been his intention since the beginning. It's why he creates Adam and Eve. And then he calls them. If you notice in that early story in Genesis, he calls them to begin creating culture. Create alongside me is sort of the invitation. Adam gets to start naming the animals. God could have just named them, said this is what they are. But Adam gets some creative reign there. It's really beautiful. You know, the first humans, they aren't just God's servants. They're God's partners. Partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. God loves involving us. And and that's why, as the video shows, Noah gets to be involved in this covenant. And Noah is told to build something, to create this ark, to be involved in making sure that humanity continues on. God could have just started with another Adam. He could have just made him out of dust, but he tries to keep the human race alive. That's why he calls Adam I mean, Abraham, to leave his homeland, to establish a chosen people to bless the nations. God could have just blessed the nations directly. He could have just made a bunch of rainfall, and they had great harvests of crops, and all of a sudden they had great culture, great films and restaurants with no human involvement at all. But God wants to involve people. He loves doing it. That's why God calls Moses to participate in freeing the Israelites from slavery. Do you really think God needed mumbling Moses and his sort of magical staff in order to free this people? No, but he actually likes working with us. And on and on it continues through David and Solomon. God does relationship through covenant which means that God desires our participation in his renewing work. Our partnership with God matters. And all of that brings us into the excitement of the new covenant of Jesus. In the new covenant, what we see in our scriptures for today, how much more intimate and personal it is. The author of today's scripture in Hebrews 12, he begins by contrasting the new covenant with the way that the old covenant, particularly the the Ten Commandments, with the way those were revealed. Um, I'm not going to read all of Exodus 19, but that's what Hebrews 12 is alluding to, which is all that happens right before God gives Moses the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. And the Ten Commandments are the primary markers 
of their part of the relationship with God. Let's read Hebrews 12 again, beginning in verse 18. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. When the Ten Commandments were given, God was very clear that no one should even touch the base of the mountain where his presence was dwelling on the top of. The whole covenantal event is marked with fear and terror and very clear separation between God and his people. And so the author continues in verse 22. You've not come to that mountain, he says. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God. There's a directness now. There's an intimacy. God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus makes possible the new covenant where we can partner again with God in his renewing work in the world. We read earlier how Jeremiah prophesies about this new covenant. He says, we're in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts. I'll write it on their minds. I will be their God. They will be my people. Do you hear the intimacy in this? Do you hear how this new covenant is about a rich interior life with God? Do you hear how this covenant becomes less about external signifiers and more about internal realities? He continues in verse 34. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The person of Jesus institutes this new covenant, which includes the forgiveness of our sins so that we can actually partner with him again. So that we can actually join God in contributing to the flourishing of the world. And Jesus brings about this covenant in two ways. Vulnerability and partnership. Vulnerability. You know, at his last meal with the disciples, Jesus passes around this glass of wine. And he says this. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus, in his life, in his death, He shows us the vulnerability of God. 
He goes to the cross as open as a person can be, as vulnerable to being wounded as a person can be. And on the cross, he's not just open to the possibility of being wounded, but to the actuality of death. And in the new covenant, he then invites our vulnerability. He invites our wide open-heartedness by showing that even when this vulnerability leads to death, in three days, it's new life again. It always actually ends in new life, in resurrection. And because of his willingness to die on the cross, his new covenant is also one of profoundly intimate partnership and participation. He talks about how his life, death, resurrection, and then ascension make possible the sending of the Holy Spirit. When he when he's, has his short amount of time as a, as a resurrected Jesus on the earth, he tells his disciples, it's actually better that I go. It's better that I ascend to the Father because I'm going to send to you a helper. And it's going to be better than if I were standing right next to you. This God, this, this, what this does is it makes God closer than our very breath. Closer than our very breath. The Old Covenant was written in letters on stone tablets. I love the imagery of that. These big chunks of stone that you had to chisel the words into. It was literally hard and heavy and external. The New Covenant is made present to us internally by the Spirit. The Greek word, the pneuma, the breath of God the wind of God. Partnership and participating in the Old Covenant was a gift. But to be vulnerable with such a heavy law was dangerous and felt like it could lead to death. In fact, it did lead to spiritual death. But our vulnerable partnership and participation in the New Covenant always leads to life. I want to end with these words from Paul. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he basically just sums up the sermon in a much better way. Should have just read this at the start. Sorry, guys. All right. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater 
is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's wordy, but that's my prayer for us all, myself included, that by vulnerable partnership with God, by vulnerably participating with God in His redemptive plan for the world, we might experience true and lasting transformation into His image. Let me read again slowly verse 18. That's my final words. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen.